Well, good morning, church. It has been 17 Sundays since I've had the opportunity to be here and worship with you all. And I want you to know, first of all, how much um, that I, I appreciate your willingness to send me out to serve elsewhere. Um, I want you to know how much I have missed most of you. Um, and I want you to know just how good it is to be back. So it's, it really was a blessing to be away, but there's no place quite as good as coming home. So thank you, for, and thank you for your prayers while we were away. All right. How many of you like movies about con artists? You know, some of my favorite movies of all time are about the giant con. You know, for example, um, I absolutely loved Ocean's Eleven. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. I just, you know, this all-star cast, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Matt Damon. I mean, what a great movie. Uh, as a child, I remember being just enthralled uh, by The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Anybody remember that movie? What a great movie. Um, how many of you saw and enjoyed the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio? You know, it's based on this true story of uh, uh, Frank Abagnale, Abagnale Jr., uh, and he was this guy, he pulls off this extraordinary con. He worked as a lawyer, he worked as a, uh, uh, a doctor, a pilot for a major airline, and he did all of this before he was even 18 years old. Um, this guy was this brilliant forger, and at the age of 17, he became the most successful bank robbery robber in the history of the United States. I mean, you know, the big con. Well, the reason why I'm starting with this, you know, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to share from the book of 1 John in the New Testament. And throughout the book, uh, John, who is the author... Uh, he returns again and again to the same theme. And the theme is this. How can you know that you are an authentic Christian and not a fraud, not a counterfeit or a fake? I mean, think about this. How many people do you know claim to be a Christian? You know, they say, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian. I carry a big Bible around. That makes me a Christian. Or, you know, I show up at church on Easter and I, and, and I show up on Christmas. So I'm a Christian. Or I have a Christian vocabulary, and I throw Christian words around. I was, you know, maybe I was baptized. I take communion. I'm in a small group. Uh, of course, I hardly ever give to the poor, and I almost never forgive anyone that hurts me. And my basic approach to life is that I have a right to be happy. You know, my beliefs about God are sort of this hodgepodge of things that I've heard in church mixed with, you know, things that I got from watching Duck Dynasty and reading The Left Behind. But you know what? I'm a Christian, right? Do you know people like that? Here's the question. How do you know? How do you know if you're an authentic Christian? How do you know if someone else, you know, maybe someone you're thinking of, of marrying or, or your neighbor next door, or how do you know if they are authentic Christians? What, what, are the, what are the qualities that you should find in an authentic Christian? What are the activities that you should observe in someone's life if they're authentic Christians? What are the beliefs that a person should hold if they're an authentic Christian? Well, you know, 1 John says that being an authentic Christian is not a mystery where you just like throw up your hands and you go, you know, who can know? Gosh, nobody can really know. Um, 
John says that you can know. You, an ordinary Christian, you can know. You can tell the authentic from the common. So today I'm going to be preaching from 1 John, and I'm calling this sermon The Authentic Christian and the Incarnation. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you have brought us here, and we are so grateful to be here in your presence. We are so grateful to offer up our worship. And Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you reveal yourself to us. Father, I pray that this next half hour, 40 minutes, that as we open your word and as we look at your scripture, that this not be about me. I know, Lord, that there is nothing that I can say, nothing that I can add. It's about you and how you have come to us through this, your word. So enlighten us, be glorified, and be blessed. And Father, bless us with your presence. We pray this in your name, for your glory, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. So our scripture, which Hannah read today, is found in 1 John verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And what I want to do is I want to start by just giving you a little bit of, of context for this letter. Um, 1 John was written by the writer of the Gospel of John, and the letter was almost certainly written after John's Gospel. Uh, many scholars would date the Gospel of John as having been written in the late 80s of the first century. And it seems that these, this letter, along with 2 John and 3 John, that those letters most likely came about in the early 90s. And it's important to understand this, too, that 1 John wasn't written as a letter to a specific church, like Paul's letters to the Romans or the Galatians or the Corinthians. Uh, rather, 1 John is more like, a, uh, uh, more like the book of Hebrews. Um, it was a, probably a group letter that was written to a number of different churches because it deals with this issue that was so prominent in the early church. So I guess the thing that we need to ask is this. What is it that these churches were facing that John needed to deal with? And the issue very simply was this. It was the denial of the incarnation, the denial of the incarnation. You see, in these churches to which John wrote, there was this growth of, of one of the earliest heresies of the Christian church, and that heresy is called docetism. And docetism, the word docetism, it's derived from the Greek word dokim, which is to be defined as to seem or to appear. And the basic idea of docetism is that Jesus Christ only seemed to be flesh and blood, uh, a flesh and blood, fully human person. He looked like a man, but he really was pure spirit. And you can see that throughout this book that John is battling this heresy. You can see this in verses like 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3, where John writes this, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. You see, docetism was an early form of another heresy called Gnosticism. And there's lots of aspects to Gnosticism. Uh, but the basic idea of Gnosticism is that matter, okay, matter is evil and the spirit is good. So the Gnostics considered the human body to be evil, that salvation then was an escape 
from the evil body so that we could be of pure spirit. And because the Docetists were Gnostics, they couldn't imagine, they couldn't conceive that God would send a savior in a material body because, again, the body is evil. So they said, well, Jesus only looked. He only looked like a flesh and blood human. He only appeared to be flesh and blood, but he was actually pure spirit. Otherwise, he couldn't have accomplished salvation. Okay, you guys tracking with me? So here's what I want you to know, and it's really important to understand that John wrote this letter to combat this early heresy called docetism, which denied the incarnation of Christ. Okay, everything that I just said is about that, that John wrote this letter against, to speak against this heresy that denied the incarnation of Christ. So what do we mean by incarnation? Well, you know, I'm, I'm giving you guys a lot of theology today, but John tells us in this letter that one way that you can tell an authentic Christian is that they believe true things about Jesus Christ. So you've got to have a, a certain amount of theology, you know, this basic God talk or truths about God in your mind for you to know that you're an authentic Christian. And for us to know that others are authentic Christians, they must believe these truths about Jesus Christ. And if some deny these truths, then we know that they are not authentic Christians. I mean, this is important stuff. Now, incarnation is a word that every Christian ought to understand. And what does it mean? Well, incarnate comes from the Latin, which incarnate, which means in flesh. So John writes in 1 John 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Here's what that means. He says, That which was from the beginning... Okay, that which was from the beginning. And he's talking about the word of life. And what he wrote, and he's talking about what he wrote in the prologue to his gospel. He said, in the beginning was the word. Right? Everybody recognizes that. In the beginning was the word. And John tells us here in 1 John that the word of life existed from the beginning. He tells us that the word of life was with God from all eternity. That the word of life was with the Father in a close, personal relationship. And John is talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. And he's talking about that existing from the beginning with the Father, from all eternity past. But this pre-incarnate Christ became incarnate or in flesh. And John says that we, that we, his disciples, his followers, um, had an eyewitness experience of him. You know, Jesus wasn't just a ghost. He didn't just appear to be in the flesh. John says that our experience of his life was a sensory experience, that all of the disciples' senses were employed in experience Christ. I mean, consider the senses that John mentions here in verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. You know, the first disciples, they didn't just have a, a vision of him. It wasn't with the eyes of their hearts. Rather, it was with this physical organ that we call the eye. They saw the word in flesh. 
They, they felt him. They touched him. He wasn't a ghost. They saw him. They heard him. They touched him. They, they hugged him. John is promoting this infleshing, this embodied, this real life flesh and blood Jesus over and against what the ascetics taught. And friends, we need to hear this message today. You know, through, through, throughout the history of the church, the church has tended to slide into this ascetic error. You know, throughout history, the church has exalted Jesus and called him God. He is. We should do that. But he has often been portrayed and understood as being so far removed from this world that he doesn't seem fully human. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So I, I want you to think of like these, you know, you ever see these medieval portraits of Christ as we come in the, Christ, uh, the Christmas season? You know, think about the one that we see. There was, you know, the baby Jesus, and he's surrounded by this halo, right? Yeah, I mean, but Scripture tells us that he was born in a cow shed. But in these paintings, the baby Jesus, again, surrounded by this angelic, angelic halo, and there's these fat angel babies floating around on clouds, you know, playing harps. And, and, you know, but we know that he was bedded in a feeding trough. He was surrounded by cows, goats, mules, chickens. Right? So these medieval pictures of him sleeping in this, you know, it's that otherworldly persona. You know, there's no barn noises. There's no offensive noises or, or, or odors. And I mean, come on. You know, I look around this room today, and I see all of my friends here. You know, we're in northwestern Pennsylvania farm folk. Does this sound like a description of your barnyard? Right? Or, 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 or think about the old movies, you know, that depict the gospel stories where, you know, Jesus always has that distant million-mile stare, you know, and he's looking through his disciples to a place a million miles away, and he utters these mysterious sayings in a monotone voice that leave his hearers awestruck, right? We've all seen them. You know, what I'm getting at is this. You know, I would say that in Bible believe in the Bible-believing brand of Christianity that we would subscribe to here uh, in this church, that we are used to defending the deity of Christ from against attacks from groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and from theological liberals who claim that Jesus was not fully God. And I think it is true that we are so used to defending the deity of Christ that many of us have lost a grasp upon Christ's full humanity. You know, we view Christ as being way up there, but not one of us. But biblical Christians must claim that in Christ, God finally permanently and unrepeatedly took on human flesh. You know, there's nothing like the incarnation in any other religion. Do you recognize that? God became a man at one distinct time, at one definite point in history. So what are the implications of this incarnation? What difference does it make? I mean, what difference does it make if God became a flesh and blood man and if divinity forever took on human flesh? And by the way, I'm going to stop right there. That is what we Orthodox Christians believe, that the incarnation is eternal, that the Son of God did not get rid of his humanity when he ascended to heaven. You know, humanity was taken up to the Godhead so that God the Son is forever united to human flesh. But what difference does it make? And I would suggest to you that Americans, you know, we Americans were practical people. 
And in general, Americans don't like a lot of theory and philosophy. Rather, our approach to such deep questions as this, you know, what's the cash value of that? You know, what's the cash value of the incarnation for us? Uh, why would believing in the incarnation, really uh, laying hold of this idea that God became flesh and blood man, what difference does that make in our lives today? And I want to suggest three significant differences that laying hold of the incarnation makes for your life today, okay? Three of them. The first one is this. If you understand what it meant for Jesus to become flesh and blood, if you understand that, it makes a difference in how we look at our work. Let me show you what I mean. You know, throughout the history of the church, the denial of the incarnation or at least a failure to grasp the, the implications of the incarnation resulted in the church drawing a, uh, a, a, a sharp line between sacred occupations and secular occupations. And this, my friends, is docetism, and it's revealed in the old uh, uh, spirit equals good and, and matter equals bad heresy, but in new guard. Let me show you what I mean. You know, in the Middle Ages, the church taught that marriage was permissible, but celibacy was more spiritual. They taught that possessions were permissible, but getting rid of all your possessions is really the ideal. That it was okay to hold a vocation like being a blacksmith, but it was better to be a priest or a monk who spends all day long in contemplation of God. You know, what they taught was that normal, ordinary, secular life is okay, but if you want to live God's highest, then you need to go to uh, a, a spiritual profession and become uh, a full-time Christian worker, okay? That's that medieval, you know, this secular verse spiritual has so infected Christian thinking that it even makes many of us today feel like that most of what we do uh, with our lives, most of what we do in our vocations is completely irrelevant to God's kingdom. Um, a stay-at-home mom that I know once shared this with me. She said, I spend my whole life basically cleaning up after my kids, being a mom, shopping for food, preparing meals, uh, driving, going to soccer games. Uh, I know a Christian nurse who shared this. She said that I spend my life ordering medical tests, checking people's blood pressure, processing insurance claims. How could that possibly compare with preaching the gospel or praying for sick people or even being a missionary? And friends, here's what I want to tell you. Do you know that the Protestant Reformation, uh, do you know what the Protestant Reformation was all about? You know, we are a Reformed church here. Uh, on October 31st of 2017, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the birth of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years. And the Protestant Reformation, it was all about breaking down this divide between the secular and the spiritual. It was all about recovering the view that, we, uh, that we're all full-time Christians, not just the pastor who is handing out the communion wafer, but the person who is receiving communion, not just the monk who was spending his day in contemplation, but the person who grows the monk's food and cleans his room. You know, Christianity teaches that God's kingdom comes as we serve other people through legitimate work, as we show God's kindness, God's patience, God's character to those with whom we work as we improve our little corners of the world, as we garden, 
as we clean up our leaves so they don't blow into our neighbor's yard. You know, as we do that stuff, we are engaged in God's agenda. And the Protestant Reformation was to a great extent about restoring the goodness of everyday work. The incarnation means that all genuinely human tasks that serve someone else, that improve this world in some way for the sake of Christ or keep it from falling apart, all genuinely human tasks are equally God-given and equally spiritual. They all bring God's rule and reign and his kingdom to this world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you are involved in God's work when you pack your children's lunches as much as when you're teaching a Bible study? Or when you drop to your knees in prayer? Or do you say, well, you know, God's work is church and Bible and studying and healing and, sick, you know, and, and healing the sick and sharing one's faith, whereas 99% of what I spend my life on is so that I can make my car payment and pay my Netflix subscription. You know, most of the things that, that I think are things that are frivolous because they are not reflections of some scene in the Bible. Do you think that way? Do you ever have those thoughts? Well, friends, let me tell you something. Teaching a kid math, playing beautiful music on the piano, expressing something true and beautiful in a painting that may not portray a scene from the Bible, all of that is God's work as much as religious things are God's work. Do you believe that? Do you live in the reality and find meaning in what you do because it is part of being fully human? You know, God honored our full humanity by becoming incarnate. So again, what difference does the incarnation make? You know, if you really understand that God became a man, that he took on flesh, it will not only affect your view of work, but it will affect your view of the church as well. Turn with me to 1 John 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and we read this. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Now what John is saying here is this, that Christianity is not just a vertical relationship and by vertical relationship what I mean is to be a Christian is to have fellowship with God, to be in, in relationship with God. You know, I have this vertical relationship with God, therefore I am an authentic Christian. But John says that there is more. John says that you're not an authentic Christian unless you have a horizontal relationship with God's people, with the church. You see, fellowship needs to be embodied. Otherwise, it's, it's unreal, it's unauthentic. It's like saying, you know, I love the poor. I just don't like that disheveled homeless guy over there being anywhere near me. You know, and, and certainly I'm not going to offer to buy him a meal. You know, I'll just cross to the other side of the street to avoid him, but maybe as I go past, I'll mutter a prayer. You know, I, 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 this idea that I love Jesus, but I hate his church. Have you ever heard anyone say that? You know, maybe you've even said something like that. You know, there are so many things that I read on social media today, basically, that boil down to this. Jesus I love, but the church I hate. You know, so much of, of, of the Twitterverse, I wonder if that's a word. 
So much of the Twitterverse, or at least the Christian Twitterverse, is filled with this, you know, former evangelical people who have been uh, burned by the church and who are going through a kind of public recovery by constantly beating up on other Christians and, and on the church in general while professing true love for Jesus. They say, yes, I'm into Jesus. He's wonderful. He's inclusive. He's welcoming. He's loving. But the church, not, not so much. The church is full of hypocrites. The church is judgmental. The church is hurtful. So let me ask you, can you be an authentic Christian and steer clear of the church? Friends, I want to tell you that's a docetic view of Christianity. I mean, where is the spirit of Christ in the world today? Where is the Holy Spirit today? You know, he's not just a ghost floating around heaven. The spirit is embodied in the church. The spirit is enfleshed in the church. The church is Christ's body in the world. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. He is at the right is right now sitting at the right hand of God and from the right hand of God he sent the Holy Spirit into the world and the flesh and blood embodiment of the spirit in the world is his church. It's his church. 1 Corinthians 12:27 says this, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. What does that mean to us? Well, when we say, why doesn't God do something about the uh, appalling rates of abortion in America? Or we say, why doesn't God do something about mass starvation in Venezuela? Or we say, why doesn't God do something about the children who are neglected and abused right here in Greenville, Pennsylvania? We say, come on, God, get to work. Stop the suffering. Stop the madness. And what does the Lord say? Well, the Lord says this. He says, you, church, you get to work. You are my body in this world. You are my mouthpiece in this world. You speak up for those who have no voice. You are their hands, your feet, your money, all of which I've given you. And you do something about the suffering that you're praying for. And you know what? This church understands this. I mean, this church has demonstrated that we are the body of Christ. How often do we answer the call to serve our neighbors who are less fortunate than us? In this church, we pack shoe boxes for Operation Christmas Child and send them to children all around the world. In this church, we, are, we provide for the youth of the world through Compassion International. This church invests in pastors in the Dominican Republic through Delray Ministries. This church serves meals for the homeless at the Youngstown Mission. This church birthed neighbor to neighbor, a program where we reach out to the children and families on the west side of Greenville to share the love of Christ in a real and practical way. This church plays a major part in his work, his way. See, this church significantly gives to further the kingdom of God. Praise God. And to believe in the incarnation is to value the church, which is the body of the Christ. What difference does it make if you believe God came in the flesh and blood body? What difference does your faith in the incarnation make? Well, it makes a difference in your view of work. It makes a difference in your view of the church. And last of all, it makes a difference in your relationship with Jesus. You see, if you're an authentic Christian, you don't simply claim that Jesus is God. Authentic Christians claim that God came in the flesh. 
And it is because God came in the flesh that the Christian God can sympathize with men and women and children in a way that no other God, no other Lord, no other deity in any religion can. Authentic Christians can claim what no one else in the world can claim, that our God did not stay in the safe confines of heaven, remote from human pain or human weakness. Instead, our God entered the world, and he took on himself our nature. He lived a life like ours. He endured our temptations. Jesus was altogether sinless. He never violated the will of God. He never broke any of God's laws. He never lied. He was never guilty of sexual immorality. He never gossiped. He never failed to trust God. At no time did he steal. At no time did he envy. He was altogether pure in thought and motive. And he obeyed the scriptures perfectly. But he was human. He was human. And that means he really did have to learn his multiplication tables the way that we do as children. You ever thought of that? I mean, I can imagine his mother Mary, you know, say, no, Jesus, five times five is not 30, five times five is 25, let's try it again. Or when Jesus was cutting boards in his father's carpenter shop, do you think that he ever cut a board that was just a little bit too short? Or do you think he ever hit his, his thumb with a hammer? Of course he did. And did his thumb hurt when he hit it? Heck yeah, it hurt. You know, when he learned to read, as every Jewish boy learned to read, do you think that he ever mispronounced Hebrew words as he was sounding them out? Of course he did. He struggled as he learned to read, just like we did. There's a, a, a New Testament scholar, his name is Gerald Hawthorne. Here's what he said. In becoming a man, the Son of God willed to renounce the exercise of his divine powers, attributes, and prerogatives so that he might live fully within those limitations which inhere in being truly human. In other words, Jesus wasn't fake learning. He learned the way that we learn, by asking questions and by making mistakes. You know, Jesus had a true physical body so that when he got hungry, his stomach growled. When he got thirsty, his mouth was dry. When he was tired, he had to stop and catch his breath and wipe his brow. Jesus was fully human. And when he fell as a child, he, and it, when he fell as a child and cut his knee, he risked it getting infected. Uh, if he drank dirty water, he would have gotten sick. And I find this oddly encouraging. And I pardon me if I get too graphic, but friend, you know, when, when, when you find that you know, something that you ate uh, doesn't agree with you, you know, and you're in, 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 in the bathroom with your head hanging over the toilet and you're vomiting up your guts. I don't know about you, but in those circumstances, I pray, God, please take me now. But, but, I believe that you can also say, God, you understand exactly how I feel because you've experienced this. You threw up. And thank you for drawing so near to me and not remaining up in heaven. I'm comforted by knowing that everything I experience, you've experienced. You know, during his teenage years, Jesus probably had, had pimples and body odor and bad breath. You know, the God-man went through puberty. His voice changed. Girls probably had crushes on him. Boys may have teased him. You know, there were probably some foods he didn't like. I personally find great comfort in believing that, like me, he may hate stewed tomatoes and cauliflower. You know, I'm pretty sure that he would have loved Mexican and Chinese, you know. I can picture him in the buffet line at the Chinese gourmet. 
Could he sing? You know, maybe he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Maybe he sounded like me when I sing. Maybe Jesus had no sense of rhythm. You know, some people think that it is uh, irreverent to speak of Jesus this way. And listen to what Max Licato, uh, he's a, a famous Christian writer and pastor, listen to what he said. He said, it's, <coughs> pardon me, he said, it's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, to clean the manure from around the manger, to wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it for heaven's sakes. Don't do it. <coughs> Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Only if Jesus was fully human can he save us, rescue us, and be our substitute and sacrifice. So friends, I leave you with this question. Are you an authentic Christian? And if you answer yes to that question, then ask yourself this one. Is your life centered on the truth that your salvation comes only because of the God of eternity took on flesh and walked among us, suffered with us, suffered for us, and died for us? And if you have not made Jesus your Lord and Savior, then I ask you this. Are you searching for meaning in your life? What gets you out of bed in the morning and through your day, uh, through your long work day in your cubicle? How do you make it through eight or ten hours on the shop floor knowing that the money that you're earning is barely enough to pay your bills? Do you desire a deeper significance? Are you seeking purpose for the entirety of your life? Come to Jesus. Do you desire to be in a community of people who are changing the world? And are you willing to embrace this counterculture movement called the church? First, you must come to Jesus. You must see him as he is, the Son of God come in human flesh. Come to Jesus. Do you sense that Jesus is calling you? Why wait any longer? Friend, your life will never have significance and you will never be able to be the positive change that you desire to be until you have a real and personal relationship with Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that it was your great plan to bring Jesus to us in the flesh. And we thank you, Lord, that because of that, we can truly have relationship with him. You know, we, we, we talk about being your children. We talk about him being our brother. Our, and Lord, that's not possible unless he was one of us. And by your great plan, through your grace and mercy, you saw fit to send him here to experience what we experience, to suffer what we suffer. Lord, that truly is love. Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that in the week to come that we, uh, uh, that this reality of Jesus being flesh and blood 
that it be uh, just become more of a reality to us, that we come to understand it in new ways and the significance and how it applies to our lives. And Father, I pray that you change us through that so that we can be uh, the disciples you would have us be. Father, as we go forward into this week, I pray that you bless all of my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that you uh, use us, that you keep us safe, even as you give us a boldness to proclaim your gospel with all we say and all that we do. Bless us, we pray. And Father, we pray this in your name and for your glory. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus, amen.